This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. I am here today with new co-host, still test driving with Dan Ken. We got a lot of good feedback from the the last time you co-hosted with me. So uh, hopefully we can deliver, have a great episode. Finally, there is actually more content. So how's it going, Dan? Pretty good. I uh, just got back from vacation. It's a lot colder here now, but uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really fun to do the last one. Looking forward to this one now that we got a bit yeah. more earnings. Yeah, a bit warmer weather, right? Uh, you got actually sun and stuff, and you came yeah. back to a snowstorm in Calgary? Yeah, it was uh, 47 degrees in Mexico, and now it's uh, like minus two with three feet of snow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm kind of happy we don't have snow in Ottawa just yet, but um, I'm sure it's going to come sooner rather than later. I'm kind of hoping not until christmas or maybe a day before christmas so you have that white christmas but that's uh that's kind of what i'm hoping but let's get into it we have a lot of stuff to go over today we'll start by you know we had a lot of questions with these brookfield warrants for the reinsurance company so i know you got a quite a few questions on your end too right yeah and it was uh it's pretty confusing the whole concept of this like it took a while to kind of figure out what they're doing Yeah, (laughs) because like BNRE, the reinsurance, they do publicly trade and they're like, they're the exact same price as Brookfield Corporation. So, I mean, what I took from it is just the tax benefits overall, the return on capital versus the uh, dividend. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the main takeaway as well. So I'll give the points, uh, kind of the overview for everyone. So Brookfield Corporation, ticker BN.TO, listed in Toronto. It's dual listed, though. Um, So they are providing uh, essentially Brookfield reinsurance, just as you were saying, for those not aware, uh, BNRE, if I remember correctly. So it's an insurance company providing insurance services to both individual and companies. And Holders of Brookfield Corporation can exchange their shares for newly issued Brookfield reinsurance exchangeable class A1 shares on a one-for-one basis. And I wanted to specify the A1 because I think they already have some exchangeable shares, if I understand correctly, from their little graphic that they had in their um, SEC filing. Yeah, I believe they do. I'm looking at the graphic right now. It's I don't exactly know too much about Brookfield reinsurance, but they... It's kind of like a, well, what is it? It's like a $400 million market cap company. It's relatively small when you consider the fact Brookfield Corporation is $68 billion. These are for class A voting shares. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to see here. Pretty much what they're doing is they're decreasing the market cap of Brookfield and increasing the market cap of BNRE. Is that, am I correct in that? Yeah, that's that's the takeaway I got. So for our joint TCI listeners, you'll see the graphic I'm looking uh, at, and it's taken directly from the SEC filing. So that they did along with that. So essentially, that's that's my understanding. And it was, I'll be honest, like it took me like an hour and a half to go and reread, like not the whole document because that would have taken days, but the important sections. Um, I must have reread it like four or five times just to make yeah. sense of it because it's lawyer 
sure, you know, it's legal talk, right? So it's not the most, uh, it's not like reading a, a point form, anything like that. But essentially, the total being offered is 40 million shares, which represent about 2.44% of Brookfield Corporation's outstanding float. Uh, the offer is valid until November 13. And the share count, like you were referring to from Brookfield, would be reduced by the equivalent amount of shares up to the 40 million if fully exercised. So essentially, if it's fully exercised, it'll reduce the Brookfield share count by 2.44%. And for those who do take them up on the offer, the share would be exchangeable back to Brookfield Corporation. And if you don't go ahead with this offer and you keep your Brookfield shares, then you don't have, uh, you won't be able to exchange into the Brookfield reinsurance past the deadline. And according to Brookfield, and this is uh, straight out of the document, so the purpose of the offer is to increase the equity base and the market cap of Brookfield reinsurance. Without diluting the shareholder base, so what you were referring to, Brookfield and reinsurance is quite small. And according to them, this will better reflect the size of its operation that have grown since the formation in 2020 and provide a better market for the exchangeable shares. And there's a quote that I thought was interesting, kind of referring to what you were saying for tax purposes. These differences may result in certain investors preferring to hold our exchangeable shares because Canadian and U.S. investors will have the opportunity to receive returns of capital instead of taxable dividends, and non-Canadian investors would have the ability to receive distribution without the imposition of withholding tax. So I think that's probably, in my opinion, like you said, I think that's the biggest takeaway here. Um, I mean, they made this really complicated, uh, but obviously they must have had you know, maybe some shareholders uh, asking for this, some important shareholders or um, trying to get some more liquidity uh, for Brookfield reinsurance. I guess those are the two main reasons. Yeah. And I mean, you can, you can convert, you can request the offer and then you could convert back to Brookfield. Whereas if you don't, if the deadline goes by, you, you can't do anything. And I mean, to me, that's pretty much what this is. Like the return of capital, it's tax-free, reduces your cost base. It's going to be more tax efficient than holding, uh, you know, getting a dividend, which is which is a taxable uh, taxable payment. But I mean, that's kind of what I took from it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a more, it also depends what account, right? People yeah. have it. If they have it in their TFSA or RSP, then it's probably a non-issue. Uh, but I think that's important, right? The return of capital does reduce your cost basis. So if you end up selling the the shares eventually, then you'll have a higher kind of potential capital. Kind of a delay, really. Yeah. yeah, it's a delay. Exactly. So I think that's a good overview. Hopefully that um, makes a bit more sense for people. For those who don't have it in a registered account um, and there are tax implications, probably worth consulting uh, your accountant or a tax professional because, you know, that's our understanding of it. It wasn't the easiest thing to to understand to begin with, uh, just rereading it. Uh, but yeah, just hopefully that makes a bit more sense because I we must have had like five, six emails easily from that and tons of mentions on Twitter. So hopefully it makes sense. Um, Anything you want to add or we want to move on to uh, some Canadian earnings here? Nope, that's about it. I mean, I I own Brookfield. I don't think I'm going to be taking up this offer. I'll just keep my Brookfield shares. I don't really think I need to convert them. No, the the simple method, do nothing. There you go. 
So yeah, TFI earnings. Yeah, so go for it. I know you did the notes and Braden, I'm sure will listen to this episode because he owns TFI. I know he follows the stock pretty closely, but uh, I think he'll be interested in knowing that. Yeah, it's one that I've I've owned for quite a while too. This is a mixed quarter, so revenue matched expectations, but earnings came in quite a bit lower. And it was uh, kind of a very poor outlook, I would say. Like there was a lot of stuff in the quarter. They kind of really warned about, you know, a slowdown overall. They mentioned it a lot, like more than usual. So less than truckload which is 45% of their business, which is like smaller shipping, but you know, it can still be, I think anywhere from 500 to 15,000 kilograms or pounds or whatever it is, but they're seeing double digit declines on both a quarter over quarter and year over year basis. So it's probably because of discretionary spending. I mean, we have to remember 37% of this company's business is either retail or automobiles which are both heavily exposed right now, especially auto, like with rising interest rates, you know, vehicle sales, it's becoming much harder to own a vehicle. And overall, just fears of a recession are mounting a little more now than they were prior, just because of, you know, just their entire business pretty much took a double digit decline uh, overall, just strictly due to demand really, except their logistics segment. I think which grew 40% year over year, but it was uh, pretty much solely due to an acquisition. Recession wise, back in 2007, you know, 2007 to 2012, which was pretty much the worst economic conditions since the Great Depression. I mean, this, this is a company that maintained and grew operations and almost every single year they maintained margins. Um, they had one bad year, I think it was 2009, but outside of that, uh, they performed quite well. So I think the stock is holding up quite well since. I think it's still down 20% from peaks, but I think a lot of people have confidence that uh, they can kind of get through this. Um, in terms of the debt, so the company issued $500 million in debt on the quarter. And after this issuance, 100% of its debt is fully fixed. So it has no floating rate debt, and it's locked in an interest rate of 4.5% which is pretty attractive right now. Um, and it has a maturity of over nine years. So average maturity of over nine years. So yeah, like the, you know, financing costs actually went down on a year over year basis. And you're seeing a ton of companies with just skyrocketing financing costs, but uh, they have an interest coverage ratio of 12X, which is pretty much their EBIT compared to their debt. Um, so regardless of where interest rates go, I mean, they're in a pretty strong position uh, that way. And then uh, finally, just a 14, 14% raise to the dividend. So it's 40 US cents a quarter. Yeah, I wonder what their payout ratio is. Um, do you know? Or It's very low. Yeah. I know it's like under 20% yeah. of cash flow. It's, okay, uh, so that makes sense. I mean, yeah, they must be relatively positive for the medium to long term to up, but yeah. you know, to go ahead with the dividend raise. But you know, a low payout ratio. We talk a lot about it. I mean, that's what allows you to do it. it does create a buffer. Uh, so if you do want to keep raising the dividend, or you want just a to keep that buffer and, you know, not have to cut it if uh, times get tough. I think it's important. And I just wanted to double click on the um, their interest coverage. So EBIT, for those not familiar with it, is uh, earnings before interest and taxes. Um, so it's a common measure that's used to, uh, you know, just to calculate how much leeway you or how much money you make on, you know, 
compared to the interest payment. Yeah, so pretty much, yeah. It's earnings before interest and taxes compared to the interest it owes on its debt. So, I mean, 12x is a very, very strong coverage ratio, especially when all your debt is fixed. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good point because I've been hammering the point now for quite some time. I mean, since the last couple of years, uh, whenever they started uh, raising rates, I guess early 2022 at this point, um, just make sure you understand the balance sheet, the debt, how it's structured, uh, because, you know, floating rate or variable debt, um, it's essentially it can be very dangerous. And even if they do refinance some companies or be looking depending on what their credit rating is and how tight credit is they could be looking at pretty high rates even if they go fixed so i think that's an, an important thing to to keep an eye on and i mean it's another company in this kind of space canadian national rail um, last quarter and i'll be interested in saying what they said but they were raising kind of the alarm bell as well saying that you know it's coming up and i might be wrong but i think a year you know down the line, we'll look back and right now we'll see we're already in a recession. That's that's what I think. Just listening to earnings calls, listening to what companies have to say. Um, that's my kind of assessment. Uh, do you agree with that or you think I'm I would say, making yeah. a bit of a leap here? Like yeah. when you look at all these logistics companies like, like CN Rail, uh, CP Kansas City, like TFI, like all of them are reporting you know, they're just tempering expectations. Like even in its outlook, like TFI's outlook, they were really, really cautious on, you know, there's probably not going to be an increase in demand over the short term, which makes complete sense. I mean, most all of its segments saw, you know, 20, 20 to 25% declines in revenue. And I mean, the, like the, the thing about it is though, like there's nothing on the quarter, at least to me, that seems like it's anything outside of just slower demand, which is, I mean, I guess should have been expected in a way, which is why I think the stock isn't really trading that much off highs. But yeah, that uh, dreaded lag effect, it's starting starting to happen. And the one I'll be definitely make sure we look at is Canadian Tire, because um, I think Canadian Tire is extremely important for the Canadian economy. Not the fact that it's a retailer itself. Obviously, they have good insight on what they're selling and whatnot, but their financial services how where people use those cards outside of Canadian Tire, they can provide a lot of insights on the spending habits. And they warned, you know, they had a pretty bad earnings call, the last one, basically saying like they're seeing a big shift in what people are spending on to more essentials and definitely reducing spend on non-essential things, whether it's, you know, going out, uh, you know, even traveling, although, you know, they saw some increases, there's some deceleration there. So that's another company that I'll be really interested in watching for this earnings season. Yeah, we saw that with Costco too, a while back, just big dip in discretionary spending. People are just kind of focusing on just, I mean, groceries, rent, mortgage, things like that. Yeah, no, exactly. So now we'll move on to, uh, I guess, a sector that's doing pretty well. So um, if people, and definitely in your part of the country, uh, so consolidation, the oil and gas sector. Um, So it's been happening both in the U.S. and Canada. We saw some pretty major transaction announced in the U.S. in the last couple of weeks. And uh, major is probably even an understatement here. These are massive transactions. Um, Both are behemoths in the state, uh, in the space, and I'm sure... Uh, 
even if people don't know much about oil and gas, they'll recognize these names. At least if you've been to U.S., you would have seen them. Uh, you've seen their gas stations. So the first one uh, recently, Chevron. So this Monday said that it had agreed to buy Hess for $53 billion in stock. The total value of the deal is $60 billion when you include debt. Um, and these are part of the upstream. So upstream is essentially just a fancy word to say it's kind of the discovery and extraction part. Uh, so that they're bolstering that. And uh, um, a few weeks before that, you had ExxonMobil, who said they would be acquiring um, Pioneer, ticker PXD. So when including debt, that deal was approximately $65 billion. There's also been some in Canada. So there's been several. I, haven't, I don't have all of them listed here. So just a couple examples. But um, earlier this year, so a few weeks ago, Suncor announced that it was buying uh, Total Energy's stake in the Fort Hills oil sands mining project for just under $1.5 billion. And Total Energy is a French energy company for those not familiar with it. And Tourmaline announced a week ago that it would acquire 100% of Bonavista Energy Corporation, uh, Tourmaline ticker TOU on the TSX, and the transaction for that would be $1.45 billion. It's expected to boost its gas, gas production by 10%. And I didn't know that, but Tourmaline, I'm sure you're probably aware, they're the largest uh, natural gas producer in Canada. Yeah, so this is the one deal out of all of these that we actually like looked into quite a bit. They're largest in Canada and fifth in North America, I believe it is. But this deal, I think they paid seven hundred and twenty-five million in shares and seven hundred and twenty-five million in cash. And it's yeah, going I'm pretty to be sure that's it. Yeah, immediately accretive to free cash flow. So, like, it's pretty crazy, like, the valuations in the oil and gas sector, like, how low they are that these Tourmaline can just pretty much buy this company half with shares and it's just an immediate boost to free cash flow. Um, it already operates, like, where they, uh, Bonavista, it's already the industry leader in the area that Bonavista operates. So, I think it'll be just almost. I mean, the synergies there are almost immediate. So it just made so much sense for uh, Tourmaline. And I mean, these companies, I think the larger oil and gas companies, the ones that are very efficient are just going to be able to, like I would expect that there'll be a lot more mergers and acquisitions over the years. Like Bonavista, I think is a relatively expensive producer, not like super expensive, but it's more expensive than Tourmaline. So like the idea there is that Tourmaline is just going to buy them, probably be able to make them much more efficient, which is in turn going to just turn out more cash flow for them. Um, I can't even remember how many, like the special dividends that Tourmaline paid out this year. It's, it's crazy. I think they generated yeah. almost $10 a share in free cash flow. It's just, it was just silly. Like they're not going to generate that much next year, but, uh, and for a lot of these oil and gas companies as well, a lot of them have shifted to a strategy of just paying back all their cash flow back to investors, which, I mean, with the uncertainty in the energy sector is probably what a lot of investors want. I mean, they don't want acquisitions like this are solid, but I mean, new projects, things like that. It's a lot of uncertainty there. So I think a lot of investors in the sector appreciate essentially these companies generating the cash flow and just pushing everything back to investors. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just sharing here for, uh, yeah, joint TCI. So people see the amount, <laughs> the amount of dividends they've paid. It's, it's not, uh, it's interesting. So they seem to have like a quarterly regular dividend that's like 25 cents or 26 yeah. cents a share or so in that ballpark that they seem to be increasing, but they then have like four times a year almost or not quite, but, uh, a special dividend <laughs> that's like a dollar or two per share. So it's uh, interesting. I mean, I actually don't mind that. I'd rather companies paid a smaller regular dividend. And then when they do have the cash on the balance sheet, they don't commit to anything, uh, you know, specifically and just issue a special dividend. I guess when you do it so frequently like that, people may get used to it. Investors may get kind of used to that special dividend. But um, yeah, it's quite impressive. I didn't realize I knew they did the special dividend often, but I didn't realize it was. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think there's like eight dividend, one, two, three, seven dividend payments so far this year. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's pretty considerable. And it's not a REIT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like if you look at the trailing yield, it's like over 10%. And when you look at the forward yield, it's like 1.2. Just because, yeah, they only pay, uh, what would it be? I think they raised the dividend to $1.12 a year just recently after the acquisition. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, like I yeah, could I see them, that's... you know, generating that much cash flow. Like they could, they could easily make additional moves i mean in terms of the chevron and and exxon i'm not too keen on like the u.s oil and gas space i know these are pretty big acquisitions like chevron is worth 300 billion so uh, a 60 billion dollar acquisition is is quite big but uh there's so many tiny players in the canadian industry that i think like just major players like tourmaline canadian natural suncor like i think there's going to be a lot more activity like this and i i mean i think they paid 1.45 billion but i think uh bonavista had operating income of like 500 million dollars so they really didn't pay that much yes i mean yeah it sounds like a good deal and i'm just with you i think we're gonna see a lot of consolidation just because prices have been quite low in the past decade right or so like overall especially if you adjust it for inflation prices have, have been very low um so what tends to happen is these kind of like oil and gas companies don't invest as much um that's just part of the cycle i mean obviously you invest more if you think you're going to get a higher price because then you're going to get a better return on investment um i mean you can go you can see it return on invested capital kind of follows the price of oil uh, for these companies. I mean, it makes sense because, you know, uh, it goes with the income. But uh, it'll be interesting what happens. Definitely, uh, I think people are realizing that we're not getting off of oil anytime soon, oil and gas. Um, and it's probably here at least, I mean, uh, probably at least a couple more decades, if not more. So I think, you know, I think it, I'd rather see companies in Canada and the U.S. than uh, getting it from elsewhere that probably don't have as good uh, practices or even in some cases, human rights record. Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of promising companies in the Canadian space and the U.S. space. It's, uh, and I mean, as you said, valuations just keep getting cheaper. Um I think a lot of these, if you had a company that was generating this much cash flow in any other sector, I think they would trade at like two or three times the multiple. It's it's pretty crazy. But 
it just seems like it's there's such discounted valuations in oil and gas. Not a lot of people want to invest in it. No, no, exactly. Well, now I guess we touched enough on oil and gas, so we'll move on to uh, Tesla earnings. So you worked on that. Uh, Mr. Musk himself had some interesting comments. So I'll let you uh, go over that, and I'll probably chime in because I did listen to part of the co- the conference call, which was uh, pretty entertaining. Yeah, as, it was. Uh, as usually, yeah, is the case with uh, Elon. He was... Uh... Like I said, he was, he was a guy who a lot of the time, like in the pandemic, he could do no wrong. But now a lot of people after this conference call are kind of criticizing him for being a bit too blunt, I guess. Um, earnings of 66 cents versus 73 expected and revenue of 23, just shy of expectations for 24 billion. Uh, so double digit misses on both ends. And uh, the automotive revenue only grew 5%. So, and with it currently making up 85% of the business, it's obviously, you know, when you're seeing single digit growth, especially at the price Tesla trades at from, you know, a segment that makes up the vast majority of your business, uh, it's going to take a hit. I think it's, I think it's lost almost 20% near since this report, maybe a little less, but um, it's energy generation, like solar batteries, things like that, uh, which is 6% of the total business did grow by 40% year over year though. Um, Gross margins are taking a big hit, like business wide, just due to the price cuts, um, also due to rising material prices. So, 719 basis point decline in gross margin, uh, 964 basis in operating margin, and he bit the margin of 706 basis points. So, like huge declines across the board. Um, they've now reported a decline in earnings for four straight quarters. Uh, and margins have been on a constant downward slide since 2022. And to the conference call, uh, that was just strictly from the earnings report. And then you get to the conference call and uh, Elon Musk pretty much said that it was mostly about the Cybertruck. Like a lot of the negative stuff inside of the conference call was from the Cybertruck. He said there will be enormous challenges in reaching expected production uh, and actually getting the truck to be cash flow positive. Uh, he, you know, in a way, he pretty much said building the prototype to this thing was really easy. But actually getting this thing to production and uh, making money off of it is proving to be very, very challenging. They pushed out delivery to late 2025. Uh, they don't expect any in 2024 anymore. And he actually said word for word that they dug their own grave with the cyber truck yeah i mean it's it could look trucks are popular especially in the u.s right df-150 is constantly one of the best-selling vehicles in the u.s and all the the pickup trucks that you can find and all the big three are you know really good sellers so i can see why they would bet there um you know personally in terms of aesthetics i'm not sure i would get that <laughs> i mean it feels like right out of a sci-fi movie but um I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting, and I do like where you're going to get to after the Cybertruck in terms of uh, what he's seeing from consumers and the demand for Teslas in general. So, yeah, he – well, in terms of uh, – still, I think this is related a bit to the Cybertruck and just overall demand, which would be consumer-based. He's very hesitant right now on that, like, mega factory in Mexico. So – 
he's pretty much saying right now that buying a car is heavily dependent on the monthly payment. Like people really, I mean, you should, but most people don't look at the total cost to own when they go to buy a car. They just want a set monthly payment. And right now he just said like interest costs are just eating all of that monthly payment amount. So they're having to continue trying to cut costs uh, because people, he said just outright, like people cannot afford Teslas right now. And uh, near the end of the conference call, he started speaking on like numerous bankruptcies of motor vehicle companies during the financial crisis. He was saying like Tesla just can't go top speed into the environment there. We could be heading into right now because uh, it just buried a lot of automotive companies back in the day. And he even said, you know, if they hadn't got financing back in the financial crisis, he said it was something like two to three days before Christmas. He said all their payroll would have bounced after Christmas. So that's how tight they were. And he said he just didn't want to make the same mistake again. And I think a lot of people are getting freaked out a bit by this conference call overall. I mean, it w- there was a lot of comments in there that were pretty, uh, like I said, pretty blunt. Yeah, I mean, I I personally, like, honestly, like, you know, uh, for me, and I think a lot of people, like, personally, I find, like, there's a almost this love-hate relationship with Elon. He's very polarizing. Sometimes I, you know, I'm amazed with what he does, like, in a good way, and then the opposite <laughs> in a bad way. But, you know, I think he's right in terms of payment. I mean, we saw it with housing in Canada during the peak, people were just looking at the monthly payment. They were, you know, getting these variable payments because that's the only thing they could afford at the peak, not thinking what would happen if interest rates went up, you know, 100 basis points or 200 basis points. I'm trying to obviously know it went up more than that, but I'm trying to just portray that you know i think a lot of people weren't even considering that possibility and you know obviously the bank of canada was uh you know definitely said that rates would uh, stay low for a long time and not to harp on that again but i do think a lot of people probably never heard the bank of canada say that and a lot and the reality they just look at the payment and i i i honestly think he's absolutely right in terms of that people will look at the payment it whether they can afford or not, not the total costs of the vehicle. Um, so can't really disagree. And in terms of how the economy is going and going forward, I mean, who knows? Um, obviously, we've had some mixed data, but I think like we said earlier, I, I mean, I think we're heading into a recession, but whether that's true or not, um, it's definitely more uncertain going forward. And I think it's prudent to, you know, be a bit more cautious as a business owner. I mean, if you end up being too cautious, I think that's fine. Um, They have a really good brand. I think a lot of people will still want Teslas, even if it's, you know, they take a step back right now for two step forward in the future. I think that's uh, entirely reasonable. Yeah, I think it is too. Like you could take this, you know, a couple ways. You could get scared by it or you could kind of have a little confidence that, you know, it's not going to be a situation like it was 15 years ago when they were two days away from missing payroll. But I mean, it's the, <laughs> the payment is like, I think it the monthly payment he was mostly stating just in regards to the price cuts, because I think a lot of people were asking him like why the price cuts aren't really having as big of an impact as they thought. It's It's killing margins and impacting sales, but not really, you know, increasing demand. And he just kind of said like, you know, 
if you have a 500, he didn't say this, but what I'm saying is, you know, you have a $500 payment a month and a hundred dollars of it is interest. Uh, right now that same 500 payment, $500 payment, even after costs are cut and, you know, $400 of it is interest. Like you're, you're paying a lot more interest and the payments are ultimately going to go up even though the car is cheaper. So again, people never look at total cost to own. So when they just think of those monthly payments, it, it makes it tough. Yeah, exactly. And just maybe to add one last thing here before you uh, go on is that, you know, GM came out, I think, today with their earnings or yesterday, and they essentially pulled their guidance for the rest of the year, citing the UAW, you know, ongoing negotiations slash rotating strikes. But I, you know, I'm adamant on that. I mean, Tesla is much more efficient than the big three. And if the big three are trying to get into you know, more and more uh, electric vehicles, I think they're going to have a really hard time. Like I'm, you know, I'm definitely in terms of the stock price and how Tesla will do that, who knows? Because I think sometimes Tesla, the valuation and, you know, fundamentals are a bit out of whack, but um, I'm definitely as a business more bullish on Tesla than the big three, just by just the way their, uh, their structure is in terms of how efficient they are and their cost structure overall. Yeah, and they're like Tesla is is much more expensive than the auto producers. Like it often trades at, you know, 50, 60, 70 times earnings, expected earnings. But I mean, which, you know, a lot of that is due to the fact that they have growth outside of simply auto sales. But I think for right now, you know, 85% of the business being auto sales, uh, it's going to trade kind of like an auto company in a way. And, and they're really, really struggling uh, on that end of things. I mean, a lot of the push was for the the Cybertruck as well, which is, you know, pushed out deliveries or pushed out almost two years from now, I guess. Yeah, but at least they, I, I heard him say that they have like a million people that put a deposit on it or something, right? I mean, it's it's not worth much when you're not producing producing it. But uh, I think that's one thing he mentioned is that uh, there is a lot of demand for it. They just have to figure out uh, the production because, uh, you know, apparently it's quite hard. Yeah, especially like you don't want to have a million people putting deposits down and, and, you know, negative. You're losing money on them, right? He said He said profitability is going to be very difficult because, yeah, the prototype is easy. The manufacturing process is definitely not. No, exactly. Uh, anything else to add to that or uh, moving on to our next segment here? No, nope, that's pretty much it. Okay, so the next segment, this is a bit more macro, but again, it has definitely a big impact on stocks. So I wanted to provide a bond, bond yield updates because it's been in the news a lot. Mainstream media is definitely, you know started noticing and the especially when we look at bond yields I, the u.s treasury so the 10-year bond is really the the benchmark that people tend to look at um it's been quite volatile so i did these notes yesterday morning so monday morning and we're recording this on tuesday at 1 p.m and i looked at the 10-year yield so yesterday morning it was up over five percent and right now and actually earlier today it was down like 15 basis point from there and right now i believe it's around like uh, 4.82 percent around there so roughly 20 basis point in the span of just like uh, less like around a day and for those who are not aware like it may not sound like a lot but for u.s treasuries these are massive moves 
Like it's extremely massive and it, it has, you know, it's very volatile and makes it uh, very difficult for a lot of investors, especially institutional investors. Um, and it has impact on the stock market. Um, anything I kind of saw you checked, I think you were checking the yield right now. Yeah, I was checking. It was, it's 4.83. Okay. So I was right around there. Yeah, it's pretty close. But I mean, it's yeah. like if you, consider how big the bond market is like for treasuries to move like this much because it's all relative to demand, right? The the yields are all relative to demand. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of money involved to move this much, much more than the, uh, much more than the stock market. Yeah, exactly. And for like, maybe we'll just double click on that because I know some people know exactly what we're talking about. Some might not as well. Um, so when the Bank of Canada raises interest rates or the Fed in the US, it's really the short end. So it's uh, short term borrowing. So that's why if you have like, I have uh, an ETF called BIL. So it's US Treasuries one to three months. It almost lines up perfectly with what the Fed's fund rate is. So if Fed funds rate, so the interest rate in the US increases, and the yield on bill ETF will increase kind of in lockstep. But then the further down you go, so whether it's two years, five years, 10 years, then that is dictated by the market. And just like you said, so when you have bonds, if the yield is going down, it means there's increased demand for bonds. If the yield is going up, it means that there's a lot of selling action and selling pressure. So that's the it's kind of the inverse of what sometimes people will think. So that's the the relationship with it. It is an offer and demand, like Dan said. And, you know, it's important because it bases the rate for a lot of financing that, uh, you know, individual businesses will take like. The five-year Canadian bond, which has been extremely volatile, while well, it impacts five-year mortgage rates uh, because the banks, what they look is they'll say, okay, well, I could, uh, you know, take the money I'm lending for mortgages and park it there, or I can lend it to you with a premium. So that's how they gauge it. And the same thing goes with the 10-year on other types of financing. Um, anything you wanted to add to that part uh, before I continue? No, that summed it up pretty good. It's, I was going to mention the portion on mortgages. Like they're often, you know, the 10 year treasury is often thought of of the risk free rate. So a lot of people compare this to, you know, uh, what they could get earning additional risk elsewhere. So, you know, a bank, if they can earn 5%, might, you know, they obviously don't want a loan at lower than that. So that's why a lot of people kind of wonder why this would impact something like, uh, uh, mortgage rates, because a lot of the time when these escalate, like people talk about how fixed rate mortgages are going to go up. And that's, that's pretty much why. Yeah. And, uh, you know, U.S. treasuries are essentially the basis of our financial system. Like, that's what it is. Like, we don't have a gold back system. It's based on U.S. treasuries. And the 10 year is the primary one. There's there's longer duration, shorter in the U.S. And, you know, one thing that people have their interest in uh, learning about this is there is uh, something called the move index. And the move index measures the volatility of U.S. treasuries. And it's a reflection of market volatility, similar to the VIX for stock. So if people are interested to see how, you know, volatile it is right now, they can have a look. You can just Google it. You'll be able to find it. And 
it's pretty significant because right now it's been the highest since March of this year when we saw the you know collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and other regional banks that imploded. And it was very high in the great financial crisis as well. So that's something to keep an eye on because, you know, there's a lot of impacts that you can have with higher volatility in the, the treasuries market. And just so people understand how massive the global fixed income market is, um, it's not a total debt market. It's a global fixed income market. It's much larger than the global equity market. So I came, at, I was looking to try and find some figures, um, but the one that kind of seemed to be reoccurring the most was a report from Barclays that estimated around $130 trillion in fixed income in 2022. And that's compared to about $42 trillion for global equity. So it's really, you know, it dwarfs the equity market. I know we talk about equities mostly on this podcast, but I think it's just important to, um, you know, understand that. And I think the last thing here we wanted to talk about, do you want to talk a little bit about the dogs of the TSX? And I'll show the, the chart that you got because I wasn't aware of the dogs of the TSX. I was aware of that. I think it's the dogs or something like that of the Dow, but I think it's a bit different the way it works. But you, uh, you know, I learned something earlier with you today. Yeah. So this is, I mean, I guess in relation to just the the fixed income talk, uh, this is a lot of the reason why, uh, especially higher, higher yielding, slower growing companies are taking a big hit this year. Um, you're seeing risk-free rates of 5%. So, you know, a lot of investors are going to think, you know, why would I take on the equity risk to earn a 6% yield when I can get a 5% treasury and it's risk-free, right? So uh, the dogs of the TSX, it's much like the dogs of the dogs of the Dow, where essentially at the, at the start of every year, you take the uh, highest yielding 10 stocks on the TSX 60 index, and you pretty much buy an equal weight position in them. And for a very long time, this strategy uh, outperformed the TSX. By, it was by like 4 or 5% annualized over like a 15, 20-year period, I think. But this is the first first time in quite a while that it's actually facing like some, some pretty crazy pressure. You can see from the chart, it's underperforming the TSX by 10.1% this year. And it's underperforming the S&P 500 by 21%. Um, it's, so this is going to be, I don't have the list right off the top of my head, but this is going to be companies like, uh, Algonquin Power, Power Corporation, uh, probably either Bank of Nova Scotia or CIBC. I would imagine they'd be in there. Enbridge, TC Energy. So there's going to be a, a lot of high debt load, slow growing, high yielding companies. Oh, there it is. Yeah. So this is, I made the model portfolio to kind of simulate the returns. So it's just an equal weight position of all these companies. And um, it just kind of shows how attractive dividend stocks were when, you know, the risk-free rate was what, one or 2%. Um, you know, earning a five, 6% yield is a lot more attractive when that's the situation. But now that you have uh, the risk-free rate you know, sitting at 5% and who knows if it stops here, these stocks become less attractive uh, in or for investors for the most part. So uh, it'll be interesting to see 
how this portfolio does over the next couple of years if we don't see policy rates come down. But a lot of people, uh, a lot of Canadian investors follow this strategy pretty religiously. At the start of the year, they'll buy these stocks. Uh, and uh, at the end of the year, they'll buy the next set. And they just, they, it's kind of an active in and out situation. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I looked up the uh, dogs of the Dow and it's the same principle. Yeah. So I think I, I just, my memory failed me for, for a second. I knew it was like the worst performing, but it wasn't, I thought it was that, but it is the, the highest yielding. Um, but I think I, I mean, I know you're like that too. I'm like that. And I know Braden is like, we try to focus more on businesses and, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a dangerous strategy to just look at yield because then you could start, you know, getting into businesses that don't have great fundamentals or other things that are going on and, you know, just using a yield based strategy. I don't know. I think there's a lot of kind of caution, cautionary tales to go with that um but uh, i guess we'll switch to the last thing here on the dock uh pretty quickly because we're running a bit long so do you want to tell us about netflix earnings and uh yeah kind of the main takeaways here yeah so this this is pretty they had a pretty simple quarter so they came in relatively in line like small beats on revenue and earnings but The thing about Netflix is it's seeing a crazy turnaround just overall in its business operations. Um, year over year revenue returned to high single digits. Operating margins are finally starting to normalize. I think they're like 20 to 22%, whereas like a year ago they dipped. It was crazy. They were low single digits, I think. Um, sub subscriber growth is returning to double digits and it forecasts 11% revenue growth to close out the year. And I think... The main thing for Netflix, and I think it was a lot of the bare thesis on Netflix was its password sharing, like how it was going to get rid of it where you couldn't share accounts anymore. I think a lot of investors thought that this was going to just kill them like a lot of people would cancel and, you know, not return when in reality, it's actually causing their subscriber base to grow in a big way. And they say this password sharing is, or the elimination of the password sharing is pretty much what's fueling growth. Pretty much like the, the lull in growth in 2022 is kind of hard to pinpoint. I don't know why they experienced such a big slowdown. I know they were spending a ton of money um, on new content, but I mean, the, the resurgence in new members just because, you know, you have to have separate accounts now is actually uh, causing them to rebound in a big way. They're ramping up content spend. Uh, they ex they're going to spend $17 billion in 2024 which is around $4 billion more than last year. Um, I think some of those costs are probably due to that strike that went on. I mean, it's probably going to cost them more money to produce the same amount of content that they would have expected previously. Um, and another thing, another thing that a lot of investors thought was not going to be a good thing for the company is those cheap ad memberships that they have. But it's actually driving a lot of their new signups. 30% of all new signups out of the countries that offer it are opting to take the cheaper subscription, but watch the ads, which is not only like a benefit from a subscription standpoint for Netflix, but there's also big money in ad spend period. It's a high margin business, um, ads, sponsorships, uh, the company's really just getting started. Um, Yeah, your thoughts on that? No, I, I mean, I think it was a pretty good quarter. I mean, I've been, 
I don't know, kind of flip-flopping mentally with uh, Netflix. I I thought like it was kind of a bold move to uh, do the password crackdown. But then, you know, in hindsight, it was probably smart. So you get people hooked on this service and then, um, you know, you force them to, to pay for them eventually. I know for me, like we... Netflix, the only one we have on a recurring basis, like we have a set budget per month for subscription and we have to fit it within that. So we'll have like, you know, one month we may have Netflix and Disney and then another month if we're watching more like Crave, then we'll have Netflix and Crave. So we have to stay under a certain budget. But uh, the main reason for us is we have the most expensive one with Netflix is because, you know, you can add in accounts. Yeah, yeah. So you pay, I think it's like nine bucks or ten dollars extra per additional account, but they get the premium membership as well. So you pay like twenty-five bucks plus ten plus ten per account. I think there's a maximum of two additional accounts. And uh both my parents and my in-laws, so and they like Netflix. So we're kind of stuck in uh with our subscription for Netflix, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think like initially I think it would have been, you know. A lot of people, when they cracked down on this, were like, you know, oh, whatever, I don't need it. And then, you know, time goes by and you're like, oh, man, you know, and they subscribe to Netflix, right? So they might have cracked down on it initially, but now I think they're seeing people returning to the platform who might have been kind of piggybacking on somebody else's membership, so... Yeah, no, I think at the end of the day, I think it was a good call. And for the content spend, I remember reading that after the uh, the strike was done for the writers, that an analyst was saying that there was potential for Netflix and other studios to um, just essentially produce a bit less content because it's going to cost more to produce that content and they'll be a bit more selective in terms of the type of content they produce just because the the cost is higher. So I don't know whether that's going to be the case or whether it'll be noticeable if they do do that, but that's um, something for people to keep an eye out. Maybe in a year or two, if you notice, there is a bit less new content on Netflix. That's probably the reason for it. Yeah, they might opt for more quality over more quantity. I mean, I get, I'm, I imagine they'll just kind of watch to see, you know, user retention and stuff like that. Yeah. If they do put out less content, yeah, we've always subscribed to it. I can't, I couldn't see us ever canceling it. It's the only one we subscribe to. So yeah, I don't know. No, I mean, I mean, yeah. I got it. I think I moved out of my parents like 15 years ago. I was one of the yeah. early adopters where like there was barely anything. There was no like Netflix like you know productions it was just like movies on there like it was i think most of the revenue when i started subscribing was still from those uh, mail order dvds um yeah, yeah you could order they send you the dvd <laughs> which by the way i think they didn't they stop not too long ago i think they still had it huh I think I saw. Oh, I didn't yeah. know they still had it. Yeah, I think they still had it. But yeah. Anyways, I, I think I'm just going on a tangent here. But I think that's it for us today. Uh, thanks a lot, Dan, again for co-hosting. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? Uh, I know well stocktrades.ca, but also on Twitter. I always forget your handle, but uh, we do follow each other. For those uh, wondering. Yeah, so stocktrades.ca and my Twitter handle is stocktrades underscore ca. Okay, there you go. And yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great again. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. And uh, so we'll uh, talk to everyone next week. See ya.
The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.